right, we have Julian Barron here on the podcast. Julian is class of 2017, right, from Gilman? That's right, that's right. Um, I'm very excited to talk to you today. I've heard a ton from Cesare about you. You guys go way back, and I think what I want to start with is maybe the first time you guys met, because Cesare has told me a little bit about you coming in to his office and saying, I want to start GTV, and he's like, the world is your oyster, man. That's kind of how he... He put it to me. Well, I, I would say that that's spot on, and you know, I I have to credit Cesare with you know being pretty much the reason why we were able to do what we did. Uh, I can remember coming into my junior year of high school. There, you know, GTV at that point wasn't particularly active, and I know at that time, I believe it was the editor of the high school newspaper who was also doubling. Obviously, the Gilman News was doubling also running GTV, and it was kind of a handful and kind of impractical. And so I, I saw that GTV was sort of dormant at that point, and I thought, what do we do about that? You know, this is a great opportunity. I knew that we had the equipment. I knew that we, you know, we had people that were interested, namely myself. So I, I said to myself as a kind of optimistic and excited, I guess I was 15, 16 years old at that point, saying to myself, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna go give it a shot and see if we can do something about this. So I went, I talked to Cesare, I walked in, I sort of introduced myself. Uh, I, I said that, you know, we are, or I am interested in, in maybe doing something with this. And, and Cesare essentially handed me a blank canvas and said, go do whatever you wanna do. And I, I have to say, you know, it, it has to be one of the most challenging things and this is one of the reasons why I admire teachers so much. It has to be one of the most challenging things to sort of allow a 15-, 16-year-old student who may not know everything and may make mistakes and bumps in the road uh, to go and, and sort of do something with uh, a lot of a lot of freedom. And Cesare entrusted in me the ability to go and do that with GTV right from the get-go. Uh, which I really appreciated and, and which, you know, I, I think a lot of people probably would have been more hesitant to do because I was a wide-eyed, excitable 16-year-old kid who had aspirations to do certain things with GTV that I think Cesare would probably admit to himself. Some of them were probably a little bit too ambitious. Um, but, but you know, the fact of the matter is that he let us try. And, and I think that uh, what we were able to accomplish with GTV is a direct result of Cesare not only allowing uh, me to sort of step into that role with pretty much no experience, obviously, being a high school student doing that, but but also uh, allowing myself and some of the other folks that ended up doing GTV to make it into something on our own, right? Mm -hmm. to, to, to give it sort of an image, to give it um, a style that was unique to us. You know, GTV had been active prior to that. It was sort of in a period of, of dormancy. Um, and when we brought it back, we didn't do it exactly the way that it had been done before. And that was one of the things that I was so proud of was that, you know, we put our own spin onto it. And mm. Cesare obviously had been involved with GTV before we had gotten there, but he still let us do that. He didn't try to uh, sort of implement what he had in terms of his preconceived notions about what GTV should be, which, you know, to this day, uh, I appreciate so, so much because it's the sort of thing where when you can make something your own, it makes it that much more valuable and it makes it that much more special of an experience. So what was GTV before you took it over? And, and what are those 
stylistic changes that you put onto it to make it what it is really now how, how did you how did you change it well per my recollection before i got involved with gtv at the time when it was active it was run by a student by the name of zach pollock who i knew um when we were both in high school for a, a period of time he was two years older than me and uh, it was i mean it was of course great because it was gtv and it was getting people broadcasting experience in high school which is always fantastic but it wasn't the sort of thing where you were going to have a a constant broadcast schedule i mean we weren't do they weren't doing the number of games that we ended up doing when when i got involved and when other people started to get involved when i got to be a junior and senior um and so i think that the the main difference was the consistency of we're going to do every football game we're going to do you know two three basketball games a week Hmm. because we want to keep people constantly engaged and we want to make it to the sort of thing where when you're sitting at home thinking about your son or your friend that's playing that night you're not wondering is tonight's game on GTV? You're thinking, hmm, I should probably go watch GTV because you assume that it's on. And we right. that's what I think we accomplished that because we were doing it with such consistency. Um, and then, you know, I, I know that GTV had done this before, but we ended up doing a lot more away games. And that was something that I was really adamant about, probably too adamant about in retrospect, because we ended up going, and I know Cesare can speak to this, you know, that we, we would go places that 15, 16-year-old kids with thousands of dollars worth of equipment had absolutely no business going. <laughs> we, we, we loaded up, I can still remember this to this day, you know, we, we loaded up my, at the time, Honda CRV with our big equipment box and our cameras and our tripods and we drove two and a half hours to malvern pennsylvania for a gilman football game um and you know in the process and it was i want to say five or six of us uh mostly juniors and sophomores at the time and oh, actually it was juniors and seniors at the time excuse me and uh, we broadcast the game and and one of the things that i love so much about that and and the reason i wanted to do that was because if there's any purpose that GTV I thought could serve, it was to connect people with games that they couldn't go to. Mm-hmm. And so when there was a game in Malvern, Pennsylvania, a game, we did hockey games in Easton, we did a, another football game at Friendship Academy in Anacostia in D.C., when we had an opportunity to do that, I always wanted to jump on it. Now, sometimes it didn't go too well, but there were other times when it did, and when it did, I, I can still remember the smiles on Cesare's face and everybody else because we were just so excited that we were able to connect people with Gilman Athletics from a distance. Absolutely, yeah. You're I mean doing a huge service for everyone back home because that's one of the things is if you can't if you can't make the game, you you're still wondering what's going on. You still want to know the score, you want to know the updates, and if you could turn it on on your YouTube, right, from a distance, that's amazing. I mean, that's you're you're doing a huge service for the school. Um how did you get the other guys involved? Because it sounds like you came into Cesare's office that first time, and you wanted to do it, but you needed the crew of, of different GTV members. Did you have to recruit them too, or were they kind of open to the idea? So I hadn't spoken to them about it before I did this with Cesare. 
Um, so after I walked into Cesare's office and he, like I said, sort of gave me this blank canvas, I said, who are the people that I know that are most equipped, best equipped to do certain things? And so I, I can, you know, just to name a few people, right? And, and I hope they go back and listen to this. I'm certainly going to send them the, the link to this podcast. Um, you know, one of them was Nathan Heinlein and Nathan Heinlein had, uh, you know, been a friend of mine for a long time. And he was somebody who wasn't necessarily looking to go into broadcasting or media, but he has an, just an innate ability to make conversation. And he was very well versed in sports, particularly football and baseball. And so I said, you know what? I mean, I know he's my friend. I know it seems a little bit like uh, maybe a little unfair, but there, because there wasn't such a demand for GTV, people weren't clamoring for the opportunities. I said, why don't we take him, see how he does, and then John Ball, who another person I hope ends up listening to this, who was just a, a guru of technology. I mean, you talk about somebody that was just light years ahead of where people normally are at that age. Even for somebody that ultimately wants to be like a rocket scientist, you talk about John Ball at that age. I mean, you, he could answer any question you had about audio, video, computers. I mean, this guy may be one of the sharpest people I've ever met in my life at that age. I mean, you could put him toe-to-toe with people like 40 years older than him when he was 16, and he was just incredible. And so I said, let's get him, let's get Nathan, let's get a few other guys that are just fun to be around that are committed to producing a good product. Um, And once we did that, it came together, but it came together because I think that after the first few games, everybody started to realize that you know, we were all trying to put together this finished product. We were trying to have something that we could all be proud of every single time we went out and did what we did. And I can still remember when we would go out, we'd do a game, whether it was home or on the road, and you would think normally when people do things, because, you know, these would be like three, four-hour engagements because you got to get there, you got to set up. It's an investment. It is. There's no doubt about it. And what we would do, no matter how long it took, whether it was a Friday night, a Monday night, a Tuesday night, we would go to the games, do the games, close everything up, and as tired as we would be, we would come back in here to the GTV studio, and we would sit and we'd watch the broadcasts. Oh, wow. And we would we would sit and we'd pick ourselves apart. We'd say we could have done this better, we could have done this better. And the reason we did that was because we were just so committed to making a good product and to making our operation better than some of the competition because we did have competition at the time in the miaa or nationally were you watching other broadcasts or were you kind of just looking to the miaa for that competition it was primarily in the miaa i will say though based on some of the things that i had seen at that time you know not to i think i I feel like i'm losing a little bit of my humility here but i I think that our, (laughs) our product at the time was was really impressive and maybe one of the best in the country at the time. But I was primarily focused in the MIAA. Um, and, you know, I, I'll, I'll admit this about myself. I think I'm sort of a naturally competitive person, and I use that as something to sort of motivate me, uh, which I think if done right can be a healthy thing. And so, you know, I would look to uh, Cesare's alma mater in Calvert Hall. They were doing something over there. Um, Loyola was doing something at the time. McDonough had an, an operation over there with uh, actually the person that headed up the McDonough Broadcast Club is a, you know somebody that I, I know fairly well. Um, and so ultimately what it became was, you know, we would, we would see what they were doing at other schools and we would say, how do we do it better? How do we do it so that 
the Loyola parent wants to watch the Gilman broadcast because we're doing something that they're not. And th I think that mindset stuck until we graduated. In terms of sports commentary, what are some of those intangibles? When you came back here, you sat down, you reviewed the game that you just did in Malvern, Pennsylvania. What are the intangibles from your commentary that you were looking to tweak on the next one? Like, what, what are some of those um, areas of progress that you could point out? I think there are time. Well, the, the number one thing I will say, and I think I actually may have just done it right there and then when I started speaking a moment ago, is you'll start talking in a broadcasting, you'll find yourself going to a dead end. And that was one of the biggest things that we would look out for when we would come back and, and watch these games is because when you're doing something, I mean, you know this, doing podcasting, and I think a lot of people know this when they're behind a microphone, it's really easy to start speaking but it's just as easy to not actually have a destination. At least that was something that I would always find that I'd have trouble with. So when, when we would come back, I would think to myself, okay, let's find moments in this broadcast when I started speaking and I ended up rambling and saying something that really was not insightful and somebody could have very easily just kind of tuned out. And I think what ultimately became of that is we realized we have to have somebody either dedicated or half and half doing statistics because what would happen would be we'd come back we'd watch these broadcasts and Nathan and I would do a riff like we're you know doing a comedy stand-up show and we would realize that nobody that actually cares about this game wants to hear us sit here and riff for two hours maybe for 30 minutes but not for two hours and I think the comedy aspect is good but you've got to have some level of insightfulness so we were looking to be insightful uh, when we would come back here we'd also look at the technical elements you know there were a lot of times when and this is something that John Ball would get on big time was we would pay attention to how we were doing with our camera switching, uh, how we would do with our microphone levels. And, and this comes back to the your, your main question, which is about the commentary. It is so, so easy, I feel, when you're doing this kind of sports commentary to get either too excitable or not excitable enough. And you sort of have to find that perfect balance. You could when I can, I mean, just thinking back, you know, you have Pernell Hill throwing a 60-yard touchdown to whoever it may be, and he was the quarterback of the team at the time. Um, it's so easy to just scream and lose your mind, and I more than certainly fell victim to that a couple of times. What happens is that makes your microphone sound bad, makes you sound unprofessional, and what it does is it cheapens the moment. You really want to save that for the most incredible play that may end up on SportsCenter. Mm. So that was another thing that I would look out for in my commentary. Let's not overuse the excitement. Let's not sound like we're on NPR, you know? Mm. Are these aspects that you learned during the process, uh, during the experience of GTV, or were these kind of things that you researched on your own and looked at professionals who were doing, you know, professional games and, and tried to implement in your own? Uh, or was it a mixture of both? Or, or where did you learn the most about this? It, it seems very professional for a high school student to be this committed. I mean, I'm thinking about playing, I played Division One lacrosse, and our coaches, who this is their job, this is their livelihood, would do the same thing. They'd open up their laptops after a game and say, oh, we made this mistake, this mistake, this mistake. Most people would wait, you know, a couple of days and then open, come in here and try to figure out. You guys came right back here, opened things up, and tried to figure it out on the spot right after you saw it live. 
Yeah, and and I think really what the reason that that happened was because it all it all comes back to the reason that I wanted to get involved with GTV. It's a lot more basic than I think some people would think. The the whole reason that I wanted to get into broadcasting because you know my my whole life I've been an Orioles fan when I was younger kind of by default and then I started to get more into baseball and so I'd watch the games a lot more and what I noticed was that you know the commentator Gary Thorne was the main commentator on Mass and in fact it was just announced that his contract will not be renewed and he's not going to be coming back which is a such a shame but years of listening to him I was always in awe of how. The Orioles, for a period of time, were just so, so bad, and I would turn on the game to listen to him, and it was a combination of just how satisfying his voice was to listen to. He's got the perfect radio voice, but it's also, he had a way of making you feel like he's sitting next to you on his couch, but he's also providing you with a level of insight that you're not going to get just by watching the game. He's going to tell you statistics. He's going to tell you interesting nuggets of information that you're not going to otherwise know, and that style that ability to do that i thought man how cool is that i i i don't know a lot of people that can really make me sit down and want to listen to them every night but i was mesmerized by his ability to do that and i said if i could if i could do that i mean that would be a skill that i would cherish forever and so i don't know if i ever really did get there probably not but i i can say for a fact that Having that as my benchmark and my inspiration for wanting to do it, I, that was invaluable. Yeah, I would I would say another Gilman alum who reminds me of of Gary Thorne, who you're talking about, is Ryan Boyle, and he's a lacrosse commentator um, for college lacrosse. You, you, you've probably heard of him. He's he's big time Gilman guy, and he is my favorite commentator to watch or to listen to because he provides that level of insight that you're talking about. He's played the game at, at a very high level. He's one of the best attackmen of all times, one of the best lacrosse players in recent history. And he educates you on the game. If you're a first time watcher to lacrosse, you've never seen the sport before and you're just flipping on the channel. He'll teach you about in, in almost layman's terms about what's going on here and provide that same level of expertise and excitement that I, I feel that way too. You need that. That's I watched the PLL, which is the new professional league, this summer, and one of the reasons I liked watching is because I was learning more from Ryan Boyle. and I've played the game my whole life, and he has different terms, different insights that he's always weaving in there. Um, I, I, I couldn't agree more. It's so valuable for a commentator to to be a teacher almost too. No doubt about it. And I think for a sport like lacrosse, it's especially important because, you know, personally being from Baltimore, I never played lacrosse, but I, I love the sport. I, I like watching it. And I think for, obviously you're very well versed in lacrosse. It's a sport that is emerging thanks to the PLL um, in places where it otherwise wasn't so popular. And it's getting that national stage. You know, I think for a long time, lacrosse was sort of thought of as like an East Coast, maybe sort of upper echelon elitist sport. But it's breaking that barrier a little bit in part because of things like you mentioned the Boyle is doing and, and other people as well in their commentary. And in the way that it's covered, it's not covered in such a way where it, the references are all sort of hoity-toity college and you know we're constantly going to keep coming back to tell you about this guy that played at Princeton in 1960 you know that does make it that makes its way in there and of course we've had a lot of great players come from Gilman that have played at the Ivy Leagues and, and everywhere else and we should talk about lacrosse history but what we also do is we talk about 
the fundamentals. Why is the game fun to watch and how does the game work? And I think it's so, so easy when you are an expert at something to get dropped into it and to talk about it at a level that you think is easy to understand, but the viewer is like, huh? What? I mean, I don't understand this. And you're like, well, what are you not getting? And it's just that missing gap. And I think that people that are calling the PLL and, and sort of just general lacrosse coverage right now, I think Anish uh, Shroff, Shroff is, does a great job of this, of, of making it so that you're watching the game and you're learning about it. Like you said, you're educating the viewer, not making them feel like they're dumb, but what you are doing is you're, you're giving them sort of implied uh, suggestions as you go. So instead of just sort of saying, uh, describing to somebody what it means to be at the X in lacrosse or describing, you know, um, you know, what's a ground ball, you know, things like that, instead of doing saying those things. And here's what that means, framing it that way, you explained it in conversation so that people are learning as opposed to being given an explicit definition, like something you'd learn out of a dictionary to be able to do that well is a real tough thing. Yeah, it's definitely a skill. And and one thing I'd say about Ryan Boyle is because he's played at such a high level and he's done all of these things that are happening on the field before, it's slow motion to him. It's very easy for him to convey that through his broadcast. Is it it hard to commentate, for instance, a baseball game? Uh, If you – like in high school, you're commentating a baseball game or a basketball game. You've never played as high of a level in the basketball court so you might not know exactly what that's like to be out there. Is it hard to kind of feel and empathize with the players out there when you're in the studio broadcasting? It definitely can be. And I think it's a lot more apparent to people who, I mean, it's very difficult to put that level of self-criticism on yourself when you don't know how you come off to other people who may be more familiar with the sport, may have played it more than you. I mean, for me, and, and this is something that I struggled with for a very long time, I'd always been a big football fan. I'd always been a baseball fan. I knew the games very well. I was a little bit less well-versed in basketball, but I knew enough. I had been a college basketball fan to the point where I thought I could get by, and I think I did get by. What I really struggled with were things like lacrosse and i struggled with things like volleyball i was watching your volleyball right that was i mean we were at the time at this point in time in 2017 at gilman school the volleyball team was all the rage and i know there's it's probably you can tell me is it still popular it's very popular and one of the first things i came to gilman right after graduating i'd never even seen a volleyball game really it wasn't it wasn't cool to play volleyball in my high school no one went to the volleyball games came to the volleyball game here i was like all right i'll check it out the place is packed people are screaming dudes have their shirts off waving uh, yeah. front row i mean it's crazy and it was exciting that is exactly how i felt the first time i went to a volleyball game here as a student at gilman you know it had never really been i mean the teams had been good before there's no doubt about it under neil gaby who uh, had had coached the team for a long time uh before i was in high school but at the time when I was junior, senior, it really started to take off in terms of something that people would go to these games and it would be such an event. And I can still remember the the volleyball playoff games. We had meetings with the players, with the coach. They're sitting there teaching me, uh, Nathan, and some of the other people 
about the game because we have absolutely no idea what we're doing. And, and I'll be the first person to tell you we had no clue. And it, it was a struggle, but the, the thing that made it feasible was the excitement, the demand, uh, and, and also the fact that we were helped along by the folks at the volleyball team who really taught us about it and gave us at least a baseline understanding. But to your general question about games that you really you haven't played and, and you don't know super well, yeah, that that is a struggle. And I think the only way to overcome it is to be honest with yourself. Mm-hmm. If if you say to yourself, um, oh, no, I'll be fine. It's a, it's okay. You know, I'll figure it out as I go. You're gonna have problems. You have to try and learn it. And I know that sounds simple, but it's so easy to think you know more about something than you really do. Yep. I think I struggle with that all the time. You know, there are tons of things in my life where I say, hey, you know, I think I know enough to get by. And I realize that as I'm doing it, like, oh, maybe I should have prepared a little bit more. And I think that's a, this is a perfect example of something that is exactly like that. Yeah, the more you talk about it, it really does remind me of teaching a little bit too. You can go into a new unit for your class and say, ah, I got by on the last one. I I know this stuff. I've studied it years ago. I can get by. But you need to prepare. You need that preparation. And it sounds like you guys were so invested in preparing and gaining that knowledge in the sport, whether it be volleyball or lacrosse, and put in the time with the coaches and the other players to educate yourself so that you were prepared when you were behind the microphone. Uh, that The education piece is... You know, you you really are almost a teacher when you're behind the mic. You have to um, be quick and knowledgeable and understand the game in front of you in order to make comments about it. Yeah, you. you I think you hit the nail on the head. You have to be a teacher, and and I think what that does inherently, and and this is something I think that a lot of people maybe don't realize about when you're you're stand, sitting behind a microphone. You have to try and educate without coming off as a snob. And it's so easy. I mean, I, honestly, I could sound like a snob right now explaining this. Like, you know, it's so easy to try and explain something to somebody, to explain how something works, to explain, you know, why someone's doing something. And I mean, I think that's part of the reason why there's always so much hot debate over these sports talk shows, you know, like Colin Cowherd and whatnot, because everyone's like, oh, he did, he's never played. What does he know? Blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's really easy to come off that way. So, I, I you know, I think, the, like, like you said, there is this inherent level of like teaching it's a teaching component of it that you have to embrace and and I'll be the first to tell you there were some points that in terms of teaching myself before these games about certain things I needed to know there were times when I did it better than others um but if if I were you know to go back today to 2016 and to do GTV over again I think the number one thing that I would do more so than I did would be to teach myself aspects of the games that I was not super familiar with like lacrosse and like volleyball and to give it even more attention I think it would have enabled me to be a lot better yeah I think I think you can prepare to a point but also I'm trying to imagine if if I were to call a volleyball game right now I've never played the sport I have no idea what it's like to be an athlete it's still there's still going to be a learning curve and I'm going to be very nervous to go out there and, and try to make commentary on what's going on when I, when I haven't done it. And that's why I think like Ryan Boyle and some of those really good commentators like you were talking about for the Orioles, uh, maybe they've played at, at that high level where Ryan Boyle, it's like, but then that also gives you the challenge that you were just, you were talking about too, is it, it's, it's hard to 
convey something in layman's terms when you've played at such a high level, it's almost obvious to you. Like, why didn't he make that feed? Uh, well, like, you know, there's sticks in the passing lane, and obviously, but if I've never watched it before, if I'm a new customer of lacrosse or interested in the game, you can't come off that way to me or it's going to turn me off. I'm going to turn the channel. There's no doubt about it. And and I think, but like you said, when, when you're in a position like that where it's like, oh, well, why didn't he make that feed? You can bring that up but you can do it in such a way where you're also informing people, which is so it's like, do you ask the question, why didn't he make that feed? He should have made that feed. What a lost opportunity. Okay, well, you didn't really inform anybody of, of what happened there. Mm-hmm. If you ask, why didn't he make that feed? You can explain, well, here's why he should have done that, because this guy should have been here. That guy should have been there. And this play was set up in such a way where he was supposed to do that. And you can, you know, use the telestrator, yep. show it. Yeah. We, maybe we didn't actually have that with GTV, but you know, some of these guys at the, the higher levels, you start to have the telestrator. Um, you know, when, when you do that, that is just an added element that I think when that's captured, Oh man, it makes people really not only enjoy the product, but also gain something from it too. Sometimes maybe they don't even know. Yeah, you don't even realize you're being educated as you're watching a volleyball game. Yeah, a lacrosse game, which is it's cool, especially for the more. And I, I use that not to offend you, but I use the term obscure sports to you know lacrosse and yeah, volleyball. For sure, I think lacrosse is certainly more mainstream than volleyball is, but I I think it, it sort of a similarity that they both have is that you know they they are not going to be on primetime on a network television station. Yeah. At least not yet. Not yet. PLL is doing pretty well, though. They're, they're very good with their social media, I will say. And if they continue to have guys like Ryan Boyle teach the game, I, I think it could spread pretty quickly. But I don't know. I, who knows what the future holds for lacrosse. Um, my other question was, when you first came to Cesare with the idea for GTV, where did that originate? Like, have you always been into watching sports or Cesare or Cesare said something about weather growing up and you were very into uh, weather forecasting and and things along that line that had always been what I wanted to do and uh, pretty much from the time I was like five or six years old up until maybe beginning of my sophomore or towards the end of my sophomore year in high school I really wanted to be a meteorologist I really wanted to be a TV meteorologist, and I was enamored by, you know, the Weather Channel. That you know, people people think about, you know, what does a seven eight year old watch? You're like I watched the Weather Channel. I, I really enjoyed it because I thought it was. And, and this is, I think, a really important parallel, and, and you can start to see why sports made sense for me is because what you have in weather is you have excitement. You have excitement because there are certain things that are expected to happen. You know, the excitement, the adrenaline of uh, a storm coming. And when I say excitement, you know, I think a lot of people think of excitement as like, oh, well, are you saying that storms are good? And, you know, people's houses get destroyed. Of course not. When I, I use the word excitement in the the most literal sense of the word, which is it, it is literally the adrenaline, the feeling of, oh, my goodness, this thing is happening. And the reason that I, I felt that weather always sort of filled that that desire for me uh, was because I thought it was just so interesting that these natural phenomena could happen the way that they do um, without a human having to lift a finger to make them happen. And so for the longest time, I wanted to be a meteorologist. I, I was really just really, really laser focused on doing that in like a broadcast setting like the Weather Channel. And then I started to, you know, I, I'd, I'd been a sports fan, and I, I realized that 
as much as I wanted to be a meteorologist, there were other ways to apply my uh, interest in, you know, being in an exciting broadcast setting. And I think that there's no doubt that sports fills that gap pretty well. Uh, and you have that parallel of the excitement. You have that parallel uh, from a broadcast standpoint because they're both things that get broadcasted. Uh, weather gets broadcasted, and, and so does sports. So I, I think that those parallels made it a pretty easy transition from wanting to be a uh, meteorologist, a broadcast meteorologist, to ultimately wanting to be a sportscaster when I was in high school. Hmm. And did you ever, um, with your weather interests, like how did you <clears throat> take that and transition into, like how did you take your weather interests and transition into sports broadcasting? Was it as soon as you picked up broadcasting here at Gilman that you left that interest behind you and you're like, wow, this is exciting, this is new territory, I'm going to pursue this? Or was it always kind of hand in hand and you kind of just went down the sports broadcasting road and you were like, um, I might like this a little bit more. How did, how did that play out? I, I think part of it is definitely that I liked it a little bit more. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that I enjoyed sports broadcasting more than I did meteorology for as much as I did like meteorology and still do. One of the things, though, sometimes I feel in my brief time on this planet, uh, <laughs> you, you sort of get hit in the face with reality. And I think reality started to set in with me when I was in high school. I am not good at math. Mm. I'm just not. I've never been good at math. Um, and to be a meteorologist, to not only get an undergraduate, but ultimately a, a graduate degree in meteorology, you need to have a pretty good understanding of thermodynamics and mathematic equations and expressions. And it was something that I knew I could do if I put my head down and said, you know, I, I want to do this. I'm going to get it done. I could have done it, but I decided not to because I thought, let me let me try something different where I don't have to do that, but I can still get what I'm looking for. You can still get that feeling of anticipation, excitement, and yeah, exactly what you're looking for with weathers, almost to a higher degree of intensity in sports no doubt about it i think it is a higher degree of intensity um and and again i, I think it's so easy to to think of uh, like oh weather's not exciting it, you know how can you be excited about a, a you know a hurricane that's going to devastate people it's not it's not it, the excitement that you would think of in the traditional sports sense but it still does translate and i think that's one of the reasons I, I always like to bring this up with people you know when you look at a traditional tv newscast whether it's local or national you generally have three topics of conversation you have sports you have weather and you have news and i think those things all three of them are really interchangeable in terms of the people that are involved in telling you how they're going yeah and almost to the feeling of what, as you're watching it, the, the emotions that you get from watching the news versus the weather versus sports, there's a little bit of excitement and anxiety going on. And those feelings are almost interchangeable. They're really the same thing. I'm anxious. Well, I could change that into excitement very easily. Or I'm excited. I can start to think about it a little bit more. Now I'm anxious. It's, it's almost the same type of emotion that you're feeling. And it's it's incredible. Sometimes you you'll have situations where there's this this intersectionality of those things uh, on on like a news broadcast. Sometimes sports is the news. Sometimes news is sports. Yeah. Sometimes weather is the news, and sometimes even weather is 
sports because yeah. sometimes you're you have a situation where uh, you know like the Ravens did up in Buffalo a couple of weeks ago where they're playing with the winds that are gusting and that ultimately led to the Ravens having some struggles so you know you have that that crossover so speaking of weather and sports I have down here uh, a couple of favorite broadcast memories that that Chesre gave me that you that you will easily be able to talk about rain at MSJ that's that's one of them Oh, yes. I can definitely remember that. Uh, we were under a balcony um, for a football game. I'm, I, I, I'm getting a nod from Cesare. I'm getting this right. Um, we, were, we were under a balcony. We had a table laid out uh, beneath. And when I, I guess calling it a balcony is probably a little bit inaccurate. It was more like their booth. It was their broadcast booth that they had. But we weren't at that point permitted to use it. So we are underneath it, shielded kind of from the rain, although it was still getting on us quite a bit. And they're playing down to the field. You got parents hooting and hollering. Everybody could hear us calling the game. And and we were, I think we were getting pretty considerably drenched at that point in time. Um, but, you know, we were getting a lot of feedback from the parents from our commentary. Uh, we were from Gilman, and this game was at Mount St. Joe. So naturally, there were some parents that had some things to say about what we were saying. Uh, they thought maybe it was a little bit biased, and I can still remember that uh, chatter, hearing that chatter as we were calling the game and then being able to actually partially hear it when we came back and, and uh, watched the broadcast. So the, certainly a memory that is stamped into my mind. Did I get that right, Chesare? Chesare's nodding over here from the production <laughs> nook to our left here. So so what are some of your other favorite broadcasting memories when you think back to your f- four years in GTV? What really stands out to you or pops out in your head? That is a, a great question, and I could I could probably go on forever. But one that definitely stands out to me is when we had the opportunity to call Gilman in the baseball MIAA Conference Championship at Ripken Stadium. Uh, they were against Archbishop Spalding, and Gilman had had sort of a storybook run in the postseason that year. And we had the opportunity to call these games at, at Ripken Stadium. And one of the things that I will be most proud of always looking back on GTV is because when when we did that game and we Cesare and I had talked about this for a long time we wanted to get as close to a legitimate baseball broadcast as possible and what that meant was we wanted to have a camera in the outfield and we wanted to have a camera that was going to zoom in from behind the pitcher exactly like you'd see in a major league broadcast and when the ball's put in play you have somebody to switcher that's going to switch the view so that you see what's going on as if you're looking from the broadcast booth outward and we accomplished that at Ripken Stadium, and uh, it, it wasn't until now. Now I will say this: I, I want to make sure I get this right. Uh, we we didn't do that the first time that we were there for the Archbishop Spalding uh, championship game, but it was being there that gave us the idea to do that. And when we came back to Ripken Stadium the next year, we were able to do that. So I think I'm kind of lumping all of our Ripken Stadium uh, in Aberdeen, of course. I'm sort of lumping all those memories together into one. But all of the times that we had the opportunity to broadcast there, whether it was the Spalding championship games, which Gilman did end up losing, but it was still a tremendous run. Um, or the following year, I believe we played John Carroll there the following year. Um, and we may have had one more game there as well. Uh, being able to call games from that, that professional stadium, is I mean, that is a real dream come true. And to be able to do it uh, with an outfield camera is just a tremendous feat. 
Tempted delivers. This ball is struck towards the left side of the infield. The runner's coming home. They're going to make the long throw across. That will score the run on the RBI ground out. We are tied 4-4. Max Costas, he's out, but he gets it done. And now the go-ahead run in scoring position at second. And so now Gilman looking to take the lead here after tying it up and guaranteeing that it at least will extend into John Carroll's at-bat coming up in the bottom of the seventh. Man, what a great game it's been. All game long, it's really come down to a few crucial moments. Max Costas getting it done in the clutch. Not a spectacular hit, but does get the job done right there. It was a hard hit ball, and they couldn't force the throw at home to save the out. So here is an 0-1 count on Alex Slodzinski after he takes that ball for a strike. This ball will be sent towards center field. That's going to find grass. Here coming around third base, this another Gilman run. And the throw is not in time. He is safe. Gilman takes the lead in the seventh inning. I see the entire bench clear right there for this Gilman team. They take the lead. Their last hitting opportunity, Julian. We said they had to get it done. Thinking on the top of my head also, I, I, I can't leave out. We had an opportunity to call a hockey game down in Easton. And this was one of our, you know, vintage trips that we would take. We loaded up the car. We went down and we we drove down to Easton. And we had some of our youngest members going with us. And uh, it was just incredible to be able to go down there. We we didn't have internet in this arena. We used a mobile cellular hotspot to get on the air. And to be able to go down there and to, to do that broadcast from essentially the stands. I mean, that's something that I will always remember, no doubt. Um and I think a lot of our away games definitely stick out to me in terms of things that I remember. Um, and I, I guess another one that I, I just can't leave out, I, again, I could go on forever, uh, Gilman and McDonough in the uh, in the MIAA championship game, uh, it was the 100th, I think it actually doubled both as the, was it the MIAA championship and the 100th game? I think it was both, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was, it was, I believe. Um and it was at McDonough, and we had some technical issues getting on at the beginning, but the experience of getting to call that game, we had more eyes on us in that broadcast than I think we had ever had, and that was exhilarating to, uh, you know, to, to hear down from the booth because we were up on top of the booth. Uh, it was myself and Jack Jankowski who ran the uh, the McDonough Broadcasting Club at the time. We were calling the game together. Uh, he was calling it from a McDonough standpoint. I was calling it from a Gilman standpoint. Um, so obviously the 100th game, a lot of historical significance. But Cesare would be down to the booth along with, you know, I think Basil Apostolo was down there with him, who was one of our, you know, another GTV tech guru. Um, <laughs> and, and we would hear, you know, we're coming up on 1,000 views. And, and like those are 1,000 people watching right now. Mm. And I can still remember the feeling of like, Oh, oh my, like that is, that is a new level of broadcasting that we really had not been to. So the experience getting to do that and then getting to see Gilman win in a historic game, I think the combination of all those things was, was really spectacular. Wow. You've had, I mean, you've had some amazing memories from your time doing this at Gilman and it sounds like what I'm really most impressed from just hearing you talk, uh, is how you tried to up your game every time. So you started out and, and you guys came back here, you put your heads together and you tried to figure out how to make it better each time. And that's really what led to your success is how much progress you made. Um, and that's, I mean, that's just how you get better at anything is, is taking the time to try to figure out the holes in your game. How can you improve? And then by, was that your senior year that 
Oh, well, the, the the Gil McDonough game was actually my that was my junior year, um, but the football broadcasts we did after that were so so much better. Yeah. there's no doubt about that. Yeah, so it continued to increase every time that you came out for a game. You got that idea of putting the camera behind the plate so you can see things better. I mean, the more you do, I think the the better you can get at whatever it is that you're that you're trying to accomplish. There's no doubt about it, and but I will say, especially when you're at that age. It is so critical to have people there that are supporting you. And Cesare was there every step of the way. And other other faculty as well. I mean, there, there were a number of faculty who were always supportive, um, who would always, you know, give us good luck and, and tell us that they enjoyed the broadcast. But the, the lengths that Cesare went to to make sure that our broadcasts were not only on the air, but also that we were being supported in what we were doing, you cannot ask for anything better in somebody working at this school. You really can't. And I'm not just saying that because he's sitting next to us, but, but it, <laughs> it, it really, you, you, to be able to go and do what we did as 16, 17-year-old kids, yes, we made improvements. Yes, we were determined, but that's tough to do without the guidance and assistance of an adult. And Cesare was the one that made that possible. Yeah, and a lot of trust, it sounds like. He just trusted you guys and, and you, really, to take the ball and, and get whoever else you wanted involved to to come on board. We had John Ball with the tech and, you know, Nathan helping you out. So um, a lot of people were involved, and there's a lot of trust, it sounds like, within that, that group of GTV. Plenty of trust. And, and again, you know, to have that support system in Cesare you know, helping myself and John and, and Nathan. And, you know, there were so many other people that were involved as well. You know, I can name you know, Jack Olson. There were so many people uh, to, to be able to come together as a team because that's really what we were. And and I don't certainly don't mean to overstate it, but, you know, we were we were going out and we were going on the road. We were we had an objective and we wanted to win the day. And I, it certainly did feel like it was a team. And I I think it was a good mindset to have that way yeah I mean it sounds a lot like playing sports really in athletics it's it's the same process um, so Julian what are you doing now are you continuing this track of sports broadcasting I know you're at Syracuse and you're 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 going down a similar path now are you what are, what are your goals and what are you doing right now so so right now I well, actually, let me take a step back here. Uh, while I was in college, I came into college wanting to do sports broadcasting, um, and you know that obviously was my main objective. When I went to Syracuse, you know, Syracuse is a very competitive place. You need to be really at the top of your game in Syracuse, and you're competing with some of the best, the best people your age uh, at sports broadcasting. And I, it, when I was in college, I still am in college, but <laughs> earlier when I was in college. Um, I made sort of the second shift of my young life. You know, I'd, I'd made the shift from weather to sports, and then I made the shift from sports to news, and that's what I'm doing now. Um, and I, I think that same level of excitement and adrenaline and passion, it still carries over. I'm very lucky to have a job right now. Uh, I work for Sinclair Broadcasting, which is based right here in the Baltimore area, um, and, and very lucky to be doing that involved in their news operation because, you know, again, it is that same excitement that existed with weather and sports. Um, and, and part of the reason why I made that shift is because, you know, I have an equal, I would say I have a, a definite interest in 
uh, news and current events and things that are happening in the world. And, you know, it, it translated, like I said, very well because of the excitement. But but also I saw an opportunity for myself to, to really, you know, make a difference. And that's not to say that sports broadcasting doesn't make a difference. It certainly does. Uh, and it brings a lot of joy and, and excitement to a lot of people. But one of the things that's so great about doing news is, you know, you cover these things that are impacting people's daily lives. Uh, you cover things that could be so critical to the future of our world and how you cover it and what you decide to cover is so critical to the way that people understand the world they're living in. And that was something that I I took well to, you know, to, to be able to do that, to have the opportunity to, to, to have that responsibility in part um, was an exciting prospect for me. And so I, when I had an opportunity to go into news, I said, um, I'm going to take it. Um, I'm going to take this opportunity. And, and part of it, too, I'm, I'm not going to mince words about it. When you want to be a sports broadcaster, it's there's a finite amount of positions in this world for sports broadcasting, a very finite. Mm -hmm. And you need to be willing to, you know, grind it out. And when I say grind it out, sometimes you got to go spend two, three, four years, maybe even longer calling single A baseball games in Montana. And I absolutely would have done it if I had the opportunity. Like, there's no doubt I would have taken that opportunity, but there was a certain impracticality to it for me personally and i think that also played into my position and into my decision because of how much i also love news because of how much you know i i love to be able to be involved with the news uh but also the fact that you know sports broadcasting is such a grind um and i know it kind of sounds like i shied away from the challenge and in a way i did but you know you also have to consider like the monetary repercussions of going out to call minor yeah. league baseball for like half a decade. It can be really, I mean, that can, that can be a costly thing. Right. And location wise, I mean, it sounds like you would have to take opportunities in very remote locations. Whereas with news, you can come right back to Baltimore, which I understand is that's your home here. It's you love this place in Baltimore. I do. Absolutely. And, and there's no doubt that, Baltimore to me, I mean, Baltimore is a part of me. And I always tell people this, you know, I am so, so lucky to be from here. And I think when you go to Gilman, in a lot of ways, you are a bit sheltered from the rest of Baltimore. I, I And I think most people would agree. Uh, when you're in this Roland Park area, you don't necessarily have the exposure to the rest of the city that maybe you would if you were a little bit south or east or west of here. Um, but when when you sort of when you graduate and you take that zoom out of what Baltimore City is like, that's when you realize that there are so many things in this city that are unique, uh, that are so special. The historical elements of the city, uh, the pride that people have for this city, how it gets overshadowed by Washington and Philadelphia, but it is itself its own entity, and it really does have its own identity, even though we are right next to the nation's capital. That to me, and and the underdog mentality of Baltimore, is irreplaceable. Mm -hmm. I could never think of another place as my home, even if I was living there. I could never. Hmm. So those double A games in Montana, you're just not going to do it <laughs> just, for you. No, I mean, I, 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 again, you know, I've spent a few years in Syracuse, New York, and I love Syracuse. But yeah, what's, what's, what was Syracuse like for you going up there from Baltimore? It is, you know, one thing I will say is that, well, just to get it out of the way, there is a weather shock. Um, it, it is cold. It is snowy, and you got to get used to that. 
Well, that's the thing. People around here, and I went to school in Boston, and it's freezing. And even Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, where I'm from, is is cold. But even today, people were saying it's cold out. It's a little rainy. I'm like, no, it's not. It's not that bad out here. Syracuse, New York, it's freezing. I've been up there. It's brutal. Oh yeah, and and <laughs> I I would be willing to bet that you you played Division One college lacrosse. You ever go to the Carrier Dome? Uh, I have. We didn't play in there, but we played in that newer facility, which is like a, a clubhouse. Manly Fieldhouse, maybe? It might be. Possibly. With, with brand new turf. It's like a couple years old. It was amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, gosh. That's I think a... it's right next to the Carrier Dome, maybe. I, I could be wrong. It was a while ago. Um, uh, you know what? I, I'm sure that what you're talking about exists, but I probably am totally blanking on it right now. <laughs> but, 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 yeah, I mean, that's that is inside. Well, yeah, everything's inside up there, you yeah. know, because if you have anything outside, you're going to freeze to death. Are there any fields outside there? There are, but it's it's pretty much limited to just high school. I mean, there are there are small colleges around there, but in terms of Syracuse basketball, well, obviously basketball, but football and, and any sort of events like that, Lacro- other than— Lacrosse is all inside. They never play outside. They never—soccer plays outside, but that's really the only one that I can think of that does because mm. it's just so cold. It is. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that was a shock for you, but but Baltimore, it doesn't get that. We've had maybe two snow days since I've been down here in three years. It's, I don't know. It it, it is, um, you know, going up to Syracuse and having that first snowstorm. It was a shock, but I think the the biggest shock of it wasn't the snow itself. It was the way that people handled it. Driving up there in a snowstorm. I can remember the first snowstorm that I experienced when I had a car up there. There, uh, We were getting 18 to 20 inches of snow. I was driving going 15 to 20 miles per hour in the right-hand lane like any good Baltimorean would. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you've got people that are from you know, Casanova, which is right outside of Syracuse or DeWitt or any of those places that are suburbs of Syracuse, and they're driving their pickup trucks going 65, 70 miles per hour in the left-hand lane in the middle of a blizzard. Mm. And it's like, well, dang, if they can do it, why can't I? I can't say that I've tried it, but yeah, it's impressive. Yeah, they're just used to it. It's just a different, like in, in Boston, they just clear the roads, and you you're not cutting school you're not canceling school you're going to school it's just clear the roads and we're good to go that's right that's right you, you, like I, I think that people in new england and people in especially upstate new york they have a whole different perspective on the snow and down here in baltimore I, I, you know the perspective i always like to make jokes about it it's like uh when when you go to syracuse and you come back home whether you're from baltimore or philadelphia or jersey it's like you walk in and you're like your parents are like aren't you cold you're not wearing a coat you're like no yeah, I don't need a coat. What is this? It's it's only 25 degrees outside. But the, the, the truth of the matter is that you do really get accustomed to it being a lot colder. And it makes it funny when, you know, you see three, four inches of snow down here shuts everything down. Yeah. Uh, today was – we were thinking it might be a two-hour delay today, but it was very light, very light. It wasn't much at all. But that with that said, uh, unlike Syracuse, unlike Boston, when it does snow slightly – you know, we're we're canceled. We're done. Exactly. Uh, we, we and and we in my time at Syracuse, we've had snowstorm after snowstorm after snowstorm. I can only remember one time, one time that classes were canceled and another time they were let out early. That's it. Yeah. Hmm. So tell me a little bit about. Um, hmm. 
So tell me a little bit about your time at Gilman. And, and we've heard a lot about Cesare, about GTV, but maybe some of the other teachers and people at this school that have had an influence on you. So the podcast is called Path to Follow Podcast, and it's named after a documentary, Ready Finney, that came out a couple years ago. Um, but really the whole thing is about having teachers, coaches, faculty, staff on, alumni, to talk about Gilman uh, to start and what this place really meant to you when you went here um, and what it means to you today looking back. There are so many people that you know during my time at Gilman were mentors to me, inspired me, led me the right way, and I almost feel flawed and wrong for trying to to list them because there are so many and I will inevitably leave somebody out. I can tell you having gone to Gilman for 12 years the, the if I had to look at the and I hate to, I hate to put it this way but I have to be honest because this is an honest show. Um I look at lower school, I look at middle school, I look at upper school and and I think about um you know the quantity of people when I was in middle school that really steered me. I I can still remember People like, uh, and some of them may not still be here, but I can remember you know, Chris Downs was a, I don't know if he's still here, but a, a history teacher in middle school, Andre Jones, who taught geography. Um, and, and those are two people in particular that I really remember uh, in middle school that were, you know, guiding forces and such good influence. Uh, Madame Abruzzo is another one I can remember from, from when I was in middle school. She was our French teacher. Um, but if I had to look at middle school and, and I depict somebody that gave me a new perspective on everything. Maybe it wasn't necessarily a, um, somebody that, that I looked up to and, and wanted to be like, but taught me a new outlook on how to perceive the world. I have to go with Mr. Culbertson, who I was lucky enough to have uh, in sixth grade and eighth grade. And, uh, you know, I was, I had him for math and, and, like I said before, I was never a math guy, so it wasn't like I was sitting there saying, dang, I want to be like Mr. Culbertson because I wasn't any good at math, so I couldn't be like Mr. Culbertson. But his teaching style and, and I mean, the way he would – the it's almost impossible to describe, but it, it was sort of an interrogative teaching style where – the, the, the flow of the class would be him asking questions of everyone and his questions and your answers would steer the direction of the class in math. It's not like this was philosophy, but he did it with math. And, and, and that to me was so astounding. And for me, it, it almost blurred the line between what is, um, you know, what everybody's expectation was from math and sciences. Everyone thinks of it as such a cold, impersonal thing. But I can't think of anybody that maybe had more personality than Mr. Culbertson when I was in middle school. Yeah, and he made it an interactive conversation. When you think of math, you think of like a lecture style or taking what the teacher is saying and just put it in your notebook. I I don't even really think of math as kind of an interacted conversation like that. So that's an amazing style of teaching. It's incredible. It's one of a kind, really. And and Mr. Culbertson, to me, is the kind of person that will never – I mean – I can't think of anyone that was ever like him except for his brother, who at one point was the head of the middle school. Um, those two were very similar. But but other than the, the, the two Culbertsons, I mean, they are really two of a kind. Um, you know, when I got to upper school, there were, there were s- certain teachers that really changed my perspective on a lot of things. 
Um, you know, one of them that definitely comes to mind is Dr. Kelly. Uh, Dr. Kelly, who can is he is still teaching in the upper school? No, he was here. I, I did get to know him a little bit, Dr. Kelly. Yeah, it, it, Dr. Kelly was. Uh, I, I took two. I believe I took two of his electives. Um, and I mean, he really he was a tough teacher, but he really makes you think about everything, everything you do, everything you say. One experience that I will never forget is I was in a class, and all of his classes were conversational, so he taught history, and, you know, I'm pretty sure he taught exclusively history, and we were having a conversation, and I remember it was just a little thing, you know, I was talking to somebody in our class, and I go, well, if you think about it, X, Y, Z, you don't really, I mean, that's not something you really give a lot of thought to. People say that all the time. If you think about it, well, this is what I think. And I remember Dr. Kelly would – he actually stopped me after class, and he said, why do you say if you think about it? And I said, I don't, I don't – did I say that? I'm not – I don't even really recall that. And, and he said, well, when you say if you think about it, you're implying that the other person hasn't thought about it. Mm-hmm. And to this day, and I kid you not, to this day, every single time I say that sort of just at – like out of habit if you think about it i think of dr kelly and i think of him saying that to me because i remember the implication that he told me that that gives and so that's just one thing i can remember from my time in high school well if you're if you're in an argument with someone or you're trying to convince someone if you say that it it it, it also implies that you know something that they don't and maybe they're wrong and then that puts them on their heels and you win the argument right there like it's a persuasive kind of clause that you just naturally probably use. But if you think about it, I'm, I know a little bit more about something than you don't. Right, exactly. And, and I think Dr. Kelly, what he was trying to do was he was trying to teach us how to have a respectful debate and to be informative. And, and you know, I understand the rhetorical tactics that may be using if saying something like if you think about it may lend some credibility to right like if you're trying to persuade somebody to your argument it may make you sound like you're more informed but it also may uh, degrade a little bit from your argument from the informativeness of your conversation because i think that's what dr kelly was getting at mm. he wasn't thinking about it like you know jfk nixon in 1960 trying to see who sounded and and looked better uh to the to the you know the national population he's thinking about it as here are a group of future lawmakers future policymakers that need to work for their constituents that's how he approached that class and so i think that's why he was so uh that's why he was willing to point something like that out and it's it's the reason i bring it up is not just because I'm pulling something out of my hat that I remember. It's because there are very few things, part of it's probably because I don't have that great of a memory, but there are very few things in my life that whenever something or someone says something or does something, I think of one instance. I think of one past experience. That is something. If someone says if you think about it, if I say if you think about it, I always think of Dr. Kelly, and I'm not so sure that's ever going to change. That's amazing. It's, it's crazy. And he, he probably doesn't even remember telling me about it either. Oh, he probably has no idea. But that's the beauty of Gilman. And, and I can't – I mean that I can't stress enough. You know, Gilman is a place where so many little things happen to build who you are. And that – I think of it kind of like a 
bunch of building blocks to build one big castle. And that's what you are when you leave here. And, and it's kind of it's kind of cliche to say something like that, but it really is true. It's all of these little experiences from all these different teachers and all these different mentors that come together. They come together and they mold you into who you are. And, and, and I think that when I was in middle school, you know, you hear a lot about how Gilman is so great. You hear a lot about how, you know, Gilman makes great men. And, you know, what are you, you're 12, 13, you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. But you you start to really realize it when you graduate and you reflect back on it and you say, wow, I mean, there are people you come across at your time at Gilman who give you those little moments, like I explained yeah. with Dr. Kelly, where it changes it really changes your perspective on everything. Mm-hmm. It and and I know maybe I don't mean to overstate the if you if, think about right. it thing, but that's a minor example, and you probably have a ton of major examples. But yeah. it's just funny how that I mean that that really conveys your message here. What you're trying to say is that little thing. If you think about it, that's what you think about every single time. That that one minor thing that he said to you that he probably can't remember right now. Right, he's no idea what, what. What are you talking about? I said that. Yeah. Right, and that's something you think about every time you say it. Um, those are just minor experiences, but there's a whole list, I'm sure, of things that come to your mind when you're just operating day to day that are from your time at Gilman. There's no doubt. I, I can remember. I mean, again, I can go off the list, and I'll I'll probably do that. <laughs> it's you know, I, I think about. I took a reading, writing, fiction elective with John Rowell. Uh, and is he still heading up the English department? He's not, but he's in, he's he, in the he's English He's still in the English department. Yep, yep. I love John Rowell. He, I will never forget that class. And one of the reasons is because when I signed up for it, I don't know if I had a lot of expectations for it. I thought, you know, I'm just, it's an elective. I'm going to take blah, blah, blah. But one of the things I found so interesting was, you know, he was willing to tackle some things in that class, some subject matters, because you're a senior when you take that class, that you've really never touched on in Gilman English. And really, in a lot of classes, I mean, they are tough topics. And I won't get into the nitty gritty, but um, he entrusts in his students to be able to deal with those things maturely. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I think I needed at that time. And what he allows you to do, because it's read and write fiction, you read sort of that heavy content, but then you also, you write it. And and what you do in the style, at least when I was there, was you would write these pieces, you know, six, seven, eight pages, and then you would sit in class, you distribute copies to everybody, everyone would read them, and then you'd all give feedback. And you'd workshop these, all of your stories together. You have to sit there, you have to listen to the feedback. And, you know, again, that's something that you get in a lot of classes. But the difference in this one, I thought, was that it really was no holds bar. If John Rao felt like you didn't do something right or you were taking the easy way out in your story, he's going to make sure you know it. And that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. That's a really good thing. Because if you coddle people, they're never going to fix the way, they, the way they're doing things, their approach. But he was so willing to to be direct with you about what you were and weren't doing wrong. And that's why I can still remember after that class was over, I, a few days before graduation, I saw him on Gilman's campus and I said to him, I said, that was one of the best classes I've ever taken. And 
I can still remember how happy he was to, to hear that. It's another class that I, I surely will not forget. That's amazing. And and that's something that I've thought about a little bit because so many people at Gilman, so many students love Carl Connolly's art class. And I love Carl Connolly's art class. But one thing you'll always hear from the guys who are in art here, and there are some brilliant artists. I mean, if you just walk down the hallways, you know it's just ridiculous. It's outstanding. But they'll always say that Carl Connolly – holds no punches when he comes around and he's looking at your art piece, he's going to tell you exactly if it's good, if it's bad, what's wrong with it, what you're doing wrong. He's going to honestly critique you. And it sounds just like this English class with John Rao. It, he's holding you to a higher standard, and it, you're exactly right. If, if you coddle someone as a, as a teacher or a coach, they're not going to get any better. They're not going to try any harder. They're not going to recognize their flaws at all. It's absolutely true, and it, it doesn't mean – and I, I think a lot of people think about this. They're like, oh, you don't want to be mean to people. You don't have to be mean to people to be honest with them, and I think that's something that, that Mr. Rao mastered in that class, which was you can tell somebody your honest opinion or takeaway from what you've created without sounding like – you know, you're a mean person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think part of the reluctance to do that stems from the fact that people, people associate criticism with being mean. You can have constructive criticism and it's not an oxymoron. And people do say, well, you know, don't be critical. Don't be this, don't be that. But constructive criticism at its core, I feel like is something that in a lot of ways we've lost in, in some, in some places, but Gilman, Gilman thrives off of constructive criticism. And I think Mr. Rowell is only one example. Um, but there's no better way to learn than to try and fail. Mm -hmm. And constructive criticism is the bridge from your failure to your success. It's necessary. hundred percent. Um, so Julian, if you're, if you're thinking about some of the guys who are at Gilman now, they're, they're juniors, seniors, or maybe even younger, maybe middle school, it seems like middle school had such a huge impact on you. Is there any advice or wisdom that, that you would maybe relay to students here at Gilman now that you think that they can take and benefit from? I would say, um, it, you know, it's, it's such a tough thing to, to even at my age, because obviously I'm not completely out of college yet, uh, to try and implore what I've done on people because I'm still a work in progress. We're all still works in progress, but just me especially. Um, <laughs> but but if, if there's one thing I would say, it's that, you know, don't be afraid to make an, a path for yourself that is unique. And when I say that, you know, I, I think a lot of people feel a – need to fall into a specific mold, right? There's this need, you know, I need to be good at this because this person says I need to be good at this. I need to like this because this person says I need to like it and everyone else likes it. Um, and again, I'm going to preface this with, it's a little cliche, but it's so easy in middle school and, and high school here at Gilman or anywhere to fall victim to the pressures of trends and the pressures of expectations of other people. But if you're interested in weather, go do weather. If you want to do sports broadcasting, go do sports broadcasting because there's one thing that I will, I will hold with me to the day I die is that there is no better place to try what you're interested in, to embrace what you're interested in, than right here at Gilman. I've spent three and a half years at Syracuse University. I'm incredibly lucky to be at that school. It's a great school with great people. It does not come close 
to the amount of support and the amount of individual opportunities that Gilman provides simply because of the sizes of the classes, the the ratio of faculty to students, and the resources here. It just, it's incomparable, and take advantage of it while you can because these are, these are the critical times where it, it'll make you who you are. So if that's what you want to do, if you like something that you feel like you can't like because, eh, you know, it, if you like weather, people are going to think I'm weird. Hey, you know, people did think I was p- pretty weird for liking weather for so long. But if you like that or something else, you're worried you're going to get judged for it. Try to venture into it at Gilman because you have the people there to support you. Yeah, awesome advice. And I think I 100% agree from being at Gilman for three years. I think you are going to be so hard-pressed to find a guy like Cesare, for example, who's going to trust you with GTV and let you run with it and hop in your car and drive to Easton for a hockey game. You know, it's it's not going to happen at Syracuse. It's not going to happen when you're done with Syracuse. It's going to be very rare. And I think Gilman, there are so many people here who would drop everything and say, oh, you're interested in weather? Let me do all I can to help you pursue that because look at you. I mean, look at you now. You took weather. You went to GTV. Now you're at uh, Newhouse, Syracuse, and, you know, you're going to get into news after you graduate in 2021. So it really does the, the influence that teachers, coaches, faculty, staff here at Gilman can have on students. It can change your course in your, in your life 100%. There's no doubt about it. And and one of the things that's so great about Gilman is that if you do something here, it doesn't mean you have to it like if you take, for example, like I'll, I'll use my path as an example. If you like sports, sports is what you want to do, whether it's broadcasting, playing, whatever it is. And that's something you build on. That's something you work on here at Gilman. Maybe it's not a career path, but in doing it here at Gilman, you gain experience. You you gain, first off, a certain level of comfort with yourself, but then you also gain what the faculty will bring to you, which is support and advice and changes to your approach and what you're doing that apply elsewhere. I cannot even begin to tell you the amount of things that I learned at GTV, doing GTV under Cesare and I mean, admittedly, even with John Ball because of how great he was with technology that I've applied with news that I've applied elsewhere because you things are not static. Everything is dynamic and you can take something you learn in one place and apply it another. So if, if you're in high school and you want to do something that may not be a career path, that's okay. Do it now. Mm-hmm. Do it now. It's a chance to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Venture out. It takes a little bit of courage to deviate from, from conforming to what everyone else is or to what everyone else is telling you you should do to what your parents are doing. You know, it takes a little bit of courage, but exactly what you're saying, that talent stack, you're building a talent stack that you can apply to whatever job, whatever major you end up taking down the road Um, because it all comes into play. All those skills come into play. Like, for example, I took computer science my sophomore year in college. I'm not going to be a computer science guy. I'm not really a math numbers, digits kind of guy like like you said and I was up till 3 a.m. every night trying to figure out my code it was a very hard class for me obviously but I use the things that I learned in that computer science class when I'm doing this podcast like it's making my uploads to Podbean and my like navigation of YouTube just I can understand it a little bit quicker and better because I took that one class that I didn't need to take that I 
slogged through because I wasn't doing that well and I was staying up late and I sh- shouldn't have taken. That's what I was saying in my head as I was I was going through it. But it does. It, it can play a huge role in whatever it is you do next, I think. There's no doubt. And and I agree a thousand percent. It's the sort of thing where you, know, you think about why colleges for the most part have like liberal arts cores, right? They, they try to get you to do things that aren't necessarily directly applicable to your major, but they're like gen ed sort of, you know, course, mm-hmm. core courses. And I think when I started in college, I thought, eh, it's, you know, it's a little bit unnecessary. Why am I doing things that aren't related to my, my major? But then you realize that it's, it's not all about streamlining everything you do to one thing because everything converges everything converges if you do news i'll give you a great example actually if you do sports it's pretty good to know the weather i can think of a few times when we were doing gtv when you know there was going to be a thunderstorm coming or something like that and i'm I'm looking at the radar and i'm I'm talking (laughs) about the weather and like it's it's pretty fun right because you do you have that overlap and uh everything everything converges so embrace what you can learn even if it's not directly applicable to what you do, because maybe it will be. Yeah, great advice. I, I really like that voice. Everything converges. Um, I do want to get to the book that you brought in. I'm excited about this as well, so we can kind of finish up on this book recommendation that you have, Hit List. Yes, Hit List. So I I, I will admit to you that I just recently started this because my dad referred it to me, but it, I, we watched a great documentary uh, about the JFK assassination and some of the things surrounding that. And so I ended up picking up this book, which is a sort of a, a history of some of the people uh, that ended up being killed, sometimes under mysterious circumstances, after the JFK assassination. And some of them were either directly or indirectly involved with the investigation into the assassination and some of those other things. Um, I, again, I don't want to give too much away, but what I... Uh, I'm certainly not going to sit on my pedestal and act like I'm a conspiracy theorist, um, but it's so interesting to go beyond what you're going to read in the first paragraph of Wikipedia. That's always what I like to say, right? Like there are always people, places, things, circumstances that may not be on the front page, but if you dig a little closer, it may change your perspective on some people and some things and some occurrences. Um, so whether you, no matter what you believe about Anything that happened in the 1960s, particularly pertaining to JFK, I highly recommend the book um, because what it does is it gives you context into even if you're not going to sit here and play conspiracy theorist, maybe some of the flaws with the investigation, maybe some of the uh, issues. And, and I'm being asked to, to hold it up here so you can take a look at what it looks like. Oh, going higher, going higher. There, there we go. I yeah. Like it. Um, so if you're into history, uh, if history is your thing. I, I'd say go for it, especially if you're interested in sort of that 50s, 60s, and it's obviously a very turbulent time in America and a lot of things gone unanswered. Highly recommend it. It's interesting because we had uh, Matt Baum, who's, you, you know, Matt Baum is a history department chair. He was in here. He's talking about, we were talking about Kennedy and the JFK assassination and conspiracies, and he didn't go too far down the conspiracy rabbit hole, but I think... Um, I think this might be interesting to him as well because we we opened that uh, we opened that door into the the Warren Commission, right? And, That's right, and, the Warren Commission. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah, and, and this is all about JFK. This book. Well, it's it's about the people uh, that were killed under After. mysterious circumstances 
and and they were related to or had some direct or indirect connection to the JFK assassination. So there were a whole and and Jack Ruby. Well, yes, but there it it, it goes even deeper it than goes that. Deeper. It goes deeper than that. We're talking about people that were involved with the CIA. We're talking about all sorts of things. And again, for the record, because being in news now, I'm all about the record. I'm not saying that I believe in a conspiracy, but what I am saying is that I always think it's good to get context about things. And I think this gives great context, and at the very least, it's interesting history. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm interested in checking that out, too. I'm going to put the link, so when I post the YouTube video of this, I, I always put the link, so if you'd like to order Hit List, I know I'm going to check it out. I'm, I'm kind of swamped in books right now. I'm reading Guline's book that he recommended on the previous episode of the podcast, but Hit List, that's uh, interesting because I was just watching this um, Who Killed Bobby Kennedy, and that was on Netflix, and that sparked my conversation with Matt Baum, and then that sparked the JFK assassination, and, and now we're back into uh, into a deeper dive here, so I'm, I'm excited to check it out. You know, it, it's, it's interesting because everyone's obviously going to have a different perspective on things like this, and uh, there are things we don't know about what happened with JFK that are going to be unsealed. Uh, probably, I think some are scheduled within the next 10, 15 years, things like that. But I think the greater point that I'm trying to get at is that everyone thinks of history as done. Sometimes it's not done. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there are things, sometimes history changes in the future, as weird as it may sound. That when when new documents come out about the JFK assassination, there will most certainly be things that change about what is documented in history based on those new things that are learned in unsealed documents. And I just like to implore on people that nothing is ever set in stone. It, I mean, and and that is, um, I think, maybe not applicable to everything, but uh, when it comes to history, history sometimes is just as dynamic as the, the present day. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking about your position in the news right now and all the complexities and the disagreements. We can't even decide what's true in the news today and what's real, what's fake. Think about history. I mean, it's a whole can of worms that hasn't been opened yet, and we don't really know all the details and what's in our history books, what we're reading about. It's just one perspective. It's one vantage point on everything. Absolutely. So. I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself, the fact that when you pick up and read a book, whether it's this one or any other book, it is one person's perspective. And uh, that's why I value so, so much getting multiple perspectives on all issues because it, I, I'm not saying one or the other is right, but I'm going to let you have a chance to decide. Yeah, and we can talk about it. Yeah. We can talk about it on the next episode of the Path Fall podcast. Julian, it was a real pleasure to have you on. I, I think we could do a couple more of these when you're when you're in town next. I'm glad you're moving to Baltimore, so let's stay in touch, and thanks so much for coming on. Uh, it's my pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. I hope to chat more soon. Absolutely. Absolutely.